that's just been something that I've been really thankful to be a part of because the sponsorship world can be really tough. And I think the team format, I just like that because it creates a bit of camaraderie in a very individual sport because you feel like you're kind of working towards things together. And when then you can do things, get content where you hang out at races and create friendships through it. Hello, I'm Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher. And this is the September 8th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's been two weeks since the Ironman 70.3 World Championships took place in Lati, Finland. And in that intervening time, I could tell you that I still don't really have any clue at all who most of the top 10 finishers were in that event for the men's professional field. When I woke up that Sunday morning and opened up the Ironman Tracker app, I thought that there must have been an error or something amiss. Had I been suddenly transported to some alternate reality where everyone on the podium would be an evil version of who I expected to be there, distinguished only by the fact that they had a goatee? Now that is a very specific and somewhat obscure Star Trek reference, and I'm going to be overjoyed if anybody gets it, and especially if you let me know that in fact they did. Anyways, I digress. At any rate, I guess that this can be seen as a very good thing in a lot of ways. The sport of triathlon is clearly in good hands, with a lot of young up-and-comers ready to accept the torch and continue setting some just amazing, blistering times. My only question is, how did no one in the entire world, and especially the world of multisport, know who any of these guys were or see any of them coming? I suppose some of it can be attributed to the course and the weather and the fact that these guys were all based in Europe where the race was, so they they didn't have to face the same travel burdens as many of the pre-race favorites, including Christian Blumenfeld, who, frankly, just kind of had an off day for once. Still, I wonder if we can expect something similar to happen this weekend in Nice, where the professional men's field is very, very deep and filled with many names that are not among the usual suspects for pre-race podium finishes in that kind of event. I guess we're going to know pretty soon. I should, of course, dedicate a little time to addressing what happened to Lionel during the race when he was disqualified for what I think was a pretty controversial reason. If you haven't heard by now, Sanders was passing on a narrow road that was close to traffic and did so on the left-hand side, mostly because of the speed they were going at and because of the number of cyclists there. Given the fact that officials have discretion on how this rule is applied and can levy different penalties, it strikes me as pretty over-the-top to disqualify him for something like this. This is the second 70.3 World Championships in a row where officiating has kind of upstaged the race. Last year, you'll remember, a drafting penalty to Sam Long was pretty much all anybody could talk about. Now, Ironman has a lot of troubles in its near to midterm future, but it seems to me that sorting out some of these high-profile officiating issues could go a long ways to at least tamping down negative commentary by pros and their fans around these kinds of events. Bring in the race ranger to help with drafting, clean up the rules to make them less complicated, and provide warnings to athletes rather than disqualifying them outright, as we saw to Lionel two weeks ago, and even to Matt Sharp about a month ago for something honestly similarly silly and in my mind not worthy of a disqualification. If you saw Lionel's video response to all of this, then you saw once again why he is so incredibly popular. He's just a very genuine and vulnerable guy who is intensely passionate about this sport, and for good reason. I hope that his initial reaction when he said he wouldn't race Ironman events anymore was just emotion and not the reality. This coming weekend, we have the sensational and beautiful course in Nice for the Men's Ironman World Championship to look forward to, and I, for one, am really interested to see what the reaction will be from the triathlon world, not just from those who are participating. Slots to this event were not exactly being gobbled up by male age group qualifiers for this one, even though I, for one, think that this race is going to be incredible and very much worthy of a world championship. Should the event get the praise that I believe it will justifiably garner, it will be interesting to see if women will be more interested in knee slots in 2024, and if this split location event will have a future or not. 
Given what happened in Lottie, I'm not going to be predicting anybody uh, for this one. I'm just going to be enjoying tracking it from afar. On the show today, the medical mailbag takes on a listener-submitted question related to hypothermia. We have very unfortunately left the lovely warm summer months behind us here in the northern hemisphere, and as the colder air begins to be felt, water temperatures are also going to drop. Life sport coach and my friend Juliet Hawkman joins me to discuss what a decreasing core temperature does to our body and what we can do to prevent it, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by the incredibly affable and successful professional triathlete Leslie Smith. Leslie lives in Boulder and has been a pro for almost 10 years with over 20 podium finishes, yet I am unafraid to admit that until I was introduced to her by her real triathlon squad teammate Jackson Laundrie, I hadn't even heard of her. I was really happy for that introduction, though, as Leslie is just a wonderful human being with a lot of insight on triathlon and how it can enrich a person's life. And I know that you will enjoy getting to know her as well when you hear our conversation. That's coming up in just a little while. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month or so. Putting this podcast together is very much a labor of love, but there are significant costs involved, costs that I alone bear, because I want my reviews of products and gear to remain free of any bias so that when you hear them, you know that they're coming to you and are the honest and open truth. So to do that, I don't accept any sponsorship for the program. Well, those Patreon supporters now include Daniel Joseph, who has been a longtime listener and signed up just this month to help keep this podcast coming to all of you out there. Because Dan is in North America and signed up at the $10 per month level of support, he's going to receive a special thank you gift in the form of a BOCO TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. I am joined once again by my friend and colleague, Juliet Hockman, because it's time for the Medical Mailbag, that segment of the program when we get into some questions that are prescient or front of mind for us, or as has happened this particular time, are sent in. Juliet, what do you have for us? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So this question is particularly timely because our pool here in Oregon, where I live, is closed this week or the last two weeks. And so I've been swimming in the open water more. And I've been noticing as we hit September and temperatures, temperatures cool, that the water's getting a little bit cooler every time I swim. So this question is regarding how our body either adapts or doesn't to colder water. And this question comes from Xenia Parker. Uh, she writes, this week, ocean temps near me dropped to 62 Fahrenheit with morning air temps in the 60s. An experienced swimmer and two friends went out for a lap, no wetsuits. Two folks came back and she slowed down a lot. We found her hypothermic 200 yards off the shore, holding onto her buoy and floating on her back. She was not aware of her surroundings. We warmed her up and was, and she was able to move and talk after about 30 minutes. Why did her body become so stiff and why could she not talk? What's happening when the body gets too cold? how come some people have a higher cold tolerance than others? So I think it's an awesome question. I think you and I have both um, been at swims either in practice or for races where it just seems like some people can handle that cold water better than others. Uh, what's happening to the body when we get into this colder water and what, if anything, can we do about it? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I want to just uh, acknowledge the fact that Xenia has been a longtime supporter of the show as a Patreon subscriber. So thanks, Xenia. And thanks for the question. It, it is a really good question and one that is very timely, as you said, because we're getting into the fall. Uh, oh, I missed the I know. Already. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, I haven't even started my race season. So it's, it's I... interesting. All my races are coming in the fall. So all my races are going to be in cooler water. At any yeah. rate, what's happening to the body? That's a great question. So uh, we are, of course, warm-blooded uh, mammals, which means that we have the ability to keep our bodies warm and keep our bodies at a certain 
constant temperature. We have a whole bunch of different systems by which we can keep ourselves cool when the environment is hot. And we have other systems that allow us to warm ourselves up when it is cold. But those things can be overwhelmed. And especially when it comes to colder temperatures, we're not quite as good as when it comes to warmer temperatures. So what I mean by that is we have the ability to shed heat a little bit better than we do to conserve it. And if you look historically, uh, and I'm talking like throughout the history of human beings on this planet, humans have tended to gravitate to temperate environments, temperate uh, zones of the planet for most of our history, simply because our physiology is such that we can generate heat only so much. With the advent or the discovery of fire, which obviously happened early on in human history, we were able to begin pushing northwards and southwards into cooler climates. And then once we started to do that, we started to see some adaptations. But really interestingly, over the 100 to 200,000 years that humans have been living in colder climates, there really hasn't been a lot of physiologic adaptations. When you compare to populations that have lived in Africa, for example, Inuits and Caucasians compared to African uh, people don't have significantly different physiologies relatively. There seems to be some minor changes, like, for example... Uh, Caucasians and Inuit uh, populations tend to be able to vasoconstrict a little bit better. So they're, they're able to keep blood out of their extremities and keep the blood in their core to keep it warmer, better than can African populations. They also tend to maintain a little bit more brown fat. Brown fat is uh, a fat that is really good for generating heat. The reason for that is it contains mitochondria that burns energy that doesn't produce anything other than heat. Most mitochondria, when they burn fuel, they burn fuel, the purpose being to provide energy for muscle contraction, but some of it gets wasted as heat. Brown fat have mitochondria where the energy gets burned, doesn't produce any locomotion. Instead, it just produces heat. So they're like little furnaces. So white populations, Inuit populations maintain a little bit more brown fat than do populations in Africa. So that, that's really the only physiologic adaptations that we as humans have made to be able to live in the cold. Everything else has been psychological. So we are better at clothing ourselves at keeping ourselves warm at staying out of the cold at getting ourselves inside whenever possible. And we do a pretty good job of huddling together for warmth and staying uh, close to a fire. Now, when you actually get exposed to cold and start overwhelming our ability to generate heat, you start seeing a drop in the core temperature. And our body will do a couple of things to try and keep core temperature up as much as possible for as long as possible. The first thing that happens is we stop sending blood to our extremities. So we want to keep our core temperature as high as possible. The first thing we do is we kind of reduce the amount of blood going to our arms and legs. And when Xenia refers or asks that question about why did her friend suddenly become stiff and unable to continue swimming, the number one reason for that is because in order to continue swimming, you need blood flow to your arms and legs. Well, that blood flow is not going there anymore because as the blood's going to the arms and legs, it's getting cooled by the cold water and then returning to the core. And that is further cooling down the internal organs of the abdomen and the chest and the brain and causing big problems. So the response to that physiologically is to say, you know what, we're going to keep all the blood inside our chest and abdomen where things are as warm as possible, keep that core temperature high and reduce the amount of blood going to the arms and legs, meaning there's not as much oxygen, not as much fuel for swimming. So that's why people become somewhat stiff. Another reason that people become a little bit stiff is because the cold temperature, as the core temperature drops, you start to have an impact on the brain itself and uh, you start to become lethargic. You start to become confused and uh, you start to become unable. You start to become discoordinated. So you start to become unable to do the kinds of motions that you would normally be doing. And swimming, keep in mind, is a very highly coordinated activity. And, and once the brain starts to become cold, then it's too late. So it sounds just from what Xenia is describing that her swimming colleague was at a, a 
pretty significant hypothermia. And hypothermia is graded. Accidental hypothermia Mm. is graded based on a clinical scale. It comes from mild all the way to severe, one through four. And we see different responses. When you have mild hypothermia, you start to see shivering. Shivering is the best way that we can generate heat. Our muscles start to twitch involuntarily. We all know how that feels. It's very uncomfortable. But what's (laughs) happening there is we're, we're generating a lot of heat. Once you get to moderate hypothermia, and that's where core temperature drops below 32 degrees Celsius, which is, I believe that's somewhere around 94, I think, somewhere around there, Fahrenheit, then you start to see consciousness becoming impaired and you start to see discoordination, stiffness, all those other things. Shivering becomes less helpful because it's just too cold at that point. Blood flow is not going to the extremities. You don't get shivering as much. And then you really start to get into a spiral downwards. Uh, I'm very glad that Xenia's friend was recovered at that point because it sounds like he or she was definitely in, I think it was a she, was in moderate hypothermia. And beyond that, it gets bad pretty quickly because uh, then you start to cool. You start to see unconsciousness. Vital signs start to become tenuous. You can get cardiac arrest and, and people can die. And cold water immersion, is one of the ways that people get into hypothermia much more quickly than any other types of exposures. And that just has to do with the physical properties of cold water and how easily we transfer heat to cold water versus cold air. Is is there something else that we can do for either ourselves, if we're cognitively aware enough to do it, or for our friends or training partners when we suspect hypothermia besides warming them? I mean, is there anything else one does sort of in an emergency situation besides warming of the body? Not really. Warming is the, is the hall is basically the only thing that needs to be done for these folks, assuming they're moderate. If they're, if they're mm-hmm. more than just moderate, if they're unconscious and, and their vital signs are tenuous, then it becomes a much more serious situation. But okay. for the kind of uh, person that uh, Xenia uh, is describing, that's, that's a moderate hypothermia situation. And then it's just removing them from the, the cold environment, drying mm-hmm. them off completely, and then mm-hmm. starting to actively rewarm them. Now, there's two types of rewarm. There's passive and active. Passive means just letting the person warm themselves up. So just putting blankets and clothing on them and allowing themselves to warm up by shivering. But if the person is as cold as this person was, you probably want to do some active rewarming, which means putting them into a a warm environment. And we have a, Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of ways in the emergency department that will actively rewarm people. But actively rewarming in the, in the field can be done just by putting them in a car and turning on the hot, the hot, the heater, if you will. But right. I, I think the, the more important thing here is preventing it from happening in the first place. 62 degree water is cold. It's now, really cold. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I know that some people feel like, uh, oh, that's not so bad. I can do this swim without a wetsuit. But I, I think that this is a great example of a great illustration of how things can go south pretty quickly. And if if there's any kind of current, if there's any kind of wave action, well, that 62 degrees is even colder because just the way there's wind chill, like if the, mm-hmm. if the air is cold and the air is moving quickly because of wind, it feels even colder. Same thing for water. Water that's moving quickly, that's cold, is going to also remove heat more quickly. So you, you definitely have to take these things into account. And I, a wetsuit is the best way obviously. And, and there are thermal wetsuits, which, which also are helpful because mm-hmm. they include a, a thermal layer to keep you even warmer. But preventing this, obviously, is the most important thing. And everybody's different. I think that she had a question there about the ways to adapt or improve mm-hmm. cold tolerance. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, we can speak to that. I mean, you and I both had races where we know the water is going to be really cold. I think you and I were both at St. George three years ago at the 70.3 in May, where that reservoir was in the low 50s. And I remember that 16-hour drive out to St. George being worried about that water the for every minute of that drive. But part of it, as you said, a big part of it is that is that sort of emotional adaptation. And, and I think if you can get in if for a race type situation, if you can get in three days before and just be in for a few minutes, two days before being a little longer, one day before being a little bit longer, then psychologically, you're much better prepared if you have that uh, recent exposure, plus just the adrenaline of race day, 
it makes a huge difference emotionally um, getting in the water. And as you said, thermal wetsuits are great. They really do make a difference. Thermal caps where you pull them down over your ears and double capping is another great alternative keeping putting booties on i remember when i was a rower and it was the opposite when we had really really hot races the minute we came across the finish line we would take our feet out of the shoes in the boat and dunk them and just put them on either side of the boat in the water to cool right well if you reverse that and you keep your ankles warm your feet warm it's just another opportunity to keep the rest of your body warm um so several different things but i mean one of the things that i found so interesting in, in what you've just said is that physiologically we are humans are very similar with one another in terms of their tolerance for the cold water. But we were talking before the program about bigger people might have a higher tolerance than smaller people or leaner people. But do you want to just touch on that uh, a little bit in terms of uh, differences between humans in their adaptation that are not mental? Yeah. And at first, I just want to address what you said, which is important. Almost everything that you talked about there was still about prevention. So wearing a cap, wearing boots, wearing gloves, all of those things are really just to minimize heat loss. We lose a lot of heat from our head. Our hands and feet, we don't lose that much heat, but they feel cold so fast. Yeah. And so keeping gloves right. and, and boots on just helps us feel warmer. So that that's really helpful. But all of those things, again, they, they don't really have anything to do with tolerance. They have more to do with just, again, preventing heat loss. Cold adaptation, which is something that Xenia asked about, is is actually not something that happens physiologically. What I mean by that is people who – so Lionel Sanders is, is infamous for kind of posting about how he – hates that race in Indian Wells, even though he's won there a couple yeah. of times, he he doesn't like the swim because he gets in the water. He finds that he gets a panic attack because it's so cold. And I've done that race a couple of times and I, I completely understand it is one of the coldest swims I've ever done. And he had this whole regimen where he would be doing uh, in his wetsuit, he'd be getting into icy cold baths and everything else. And he had this whole sort of thing where I'm going to adapt to the cold. So when I get in the water for the swim, I'm going to be better off. And and I want to be clear that you don't actually physiologically adapt anything. Uh, you're actually, all you're doing is building up your mental tolerance, but that, that, that's still something. And I think what you just said, Juliet, about going down early, exposing yourself to the cold water, kind of preparing yourself for what it's going to be like is extremely important because although we don't change anything about our physiology, just knowing what you're getting into, being prepared for that mentally is a really important point and a really important aspect to being able to do well. So I think that's that's really uh, worth highlighting. Now, getting to your question about whether or not different body shapes and different body types have uh, a different ability to withstand cold, absolutely, 100%. People who are have a higher percentage of body fat are therefore going to have a higher a higher ability of or a higher amount of insulation and therefore are going to be able to maintain their core temperature for a longer amount of time. People who have larger amounts of muscle, people who are bulkier muscle-wise, well, they're going to be able to produce more heat just through thermogenesis because of shivering they have larger muscle or even when they're exercising they produce heat i mean when i when i'm running I, I tend to be bigger than a lot of most triathletes and, and because I, I just am more muscular than most. And so I have a lot of trouble shedding that heat. But when it's cold, I do great because I generate a lot more heat because I have <laughs> mm-hmm. a larger muscle mass. And therefore, that muscle mass is, is thermogenic and, and generating heat to keep my core warm. So, yes, different body types definitely have a huge difference. And most of us living in temperate climates, we don't have brown fat. I mentioned brown fat as a, mm-hmm. a really important physiologic thing that that generates heat. We see we see brown fat in higher concentrations in in people who live in Arctic cl- climates like the Inuit. The other people who have brown fat are babies. Babies don't shiver. Huh. Babies have uh, large quantities of brown fat, and it's the only way that they can maintain their body temperature. And that's why it's so important to keep babies warm because they just don't have the ability to 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 generate a lot of heat by themselves. So just a little side note there. That's interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> so yeah, so I think I think it's important. And, and it's, it's funny, we were talking before, I know a woman who does 
world championship ice swimming. And she trains, she lives in Chile and she lives in, what's that beautiful place called? Portillo. Portillo, I think. Anyways, it's this amazing like mountain town where they're swimming and, and there's this gorgeous glacial lake. And she has all these pictures of herself swimming in this lake with like icebergs and stuff and it's just like it looks awful i just think it looks unbelievably (laughs) uncomfortable and then she goes and she goes to the world ice swimming championships in like siberia and they're like cutting into the ice to create a 25 meter lane and all of these women are swimming like 50 and 100 meter swims and I used to think that she must train to to change her physiology somehow to be able to tolerate the cold because they're all swimming in just typical bathing suits. They're not wearing anything. Oh, they're not fancy. even in wetsuits. Nothing, just bathing suits. They just and oh they don't dive gosh. in. They don't dive in. They they yeah. they go into the water. They start in the water, so it's an in water start. I can only imagine what diving into that, and then they start swimming and they're swimming and it's like it I it's I, it looks awful, but yeah. What I have since learned from doing this research is, no, they're no different than you and I in terms of their ability to withstand the cold. They will become hypothermic just as fast as we will. The only difference between them and us is that they have trained their minds to tolerate it better. So she gets out of the water after her 100-meter swim. I think the longest they do is 200. I think that 200 is the longest uh, distance that they'll swim. So figure that takes them about three minutes. They get out of that water after three minutes, and you should see what they look like. They look they're beet red because their 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 skin is just so cold and they're shivering and they're immediately wrapped up and taken to some warming tent where they can immediately be rewarmed yeah. because they drop their core temperature quite dramatically in that very short amount of time because they're no different than us they they get right. just as cold as we do the only difference is that they have trained their mind to be able to tolerate the discomfort that comes from being that cold. Well, it's interesting. We've, we've focused almost exclusively in this segment on, on the cold in terms of the water, right? But of course, there's plenty of races or events or just think of, I mean, I think of the upcoming rides that I'm going to have here in the Pacific Northwest in the fall where it's going to start to rain sideways and be 32 degrees. You can also get super, super cold not in the water. And as that parlays to training and racing, it's really worth thinking about and practicing how to stay warm efficiently and effectively when you're biking and when you're running, although running, it's, it's pretty hard to get really cold when you're running, but it's sure it's easy to get cold when you're biking. You know, again, just thinking about, well, in Finland this year, the men had a super cold race, right? And in St. George last year, the women had a super cold race. And the stories that came out about how those athletes during those environments coming out of actually what was not a very cold swim, right? But then transitioning to really cold air temps, and then you've got the flow of the the wind, you know, as you're biking, you know, how to plan for that and how to stay warm during those efforts too, um, as you can, and what to do and how to make decisions and how to test your own judgment as you're out there going 20 miles an hour or 25 miles an hour, whatever it is on a bike, which is, you know, also pretty high beta. So it's, it's, you know, I think that we need to recognize it's not only in the water, although you do cool a lot faster in the water, it's also, you know, on your bike or just out in the world too. It was well, interesting the thing, about- and I think the thing you mentioned, the thing you mentioned is rain. So again, being wet, being wet mm-hmm. is uh, is a dramatic amplifier of being cold, right. and it water will cool you significantly faster than will air. We were lucky in St. George; it's mm-hmm. a dry environment, dry. And so it was yeah. a dry cold, and so that really helped. But if it if it's raining if it's raining and I, I think all of us will 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 relate to this if it's if it's 70 degrees and raining it feels a lot colder than if it's 60 degrees and sunny and right. that's just because being wet the just the water just transfers heat so much more efficiently away from you sorry yeah. you were going to say something else you know, I was just saying it, you it was interesting when you were talking about how to rewarm a body i remember during sort of outdoor wilderness survival training, one of the things they teach you is if you've got a climbing partner or a backpacking partner who is, is 
showing signs of hypothermia, you you strip them, right? So they're totally dry. As you were saying earlier, you got to make sure you're totally dry. And you get in your sleeping bag with, with them with nothing on so that you can have body on body contact, no clothing, both people dry. And that's the fastest way to warm them up in the sleeping bag together, right? And that's the key thing, as you say, is being dry. And I think about so many rides that I've come back from where I've been wet and cold and I'm back in my house, so I'm safe and sound. But if I stand around, even in my heated home for a couple of minutes drenched, I'm cold. <laughs> you got to get those clothes off to be able to, to rewarm, rewarm faster. Yep, absolutely. And, and we're going to follow up this segment with our next segment. We're going to talk about the opposite, which right. we've had just a, a ferociously hot summer. And we're going to talk about novel ways to stay cool, but they're all going to come back to this idea of keeping wet and keeping, keeping yourself hydrated so that you, your, your internal ability to <laughs> circulate water. It's, it's really the most important way to transfer heat is by having water either on you or within you. And like you said, the best way to stop being cold is to make sure you get dry. Right. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, I hope that we've answered Xenia's question to, to the fullest possible extent. If you have a question that you'd like for us to answer on the medical mailbag, you too can submit it on the Facebook page as Xenia did. You can answer the three simple questions to be gained admittance to that group if you aren't already a member. Alternatively, you could also send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. We will uh, be happy to answer your question here along with uh, myself, Juliet Hawkman, on the Medical Mailbag. Juliet, thank you uh, once again for uh, being here today. It was uh, a great time. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's been great as usual. My guest on the podcast today is professional triathlete Leslie Smith. Leslie currently lives just up the road from me in the triathlon-rich community of Boulder, Colorado, but she's originally from Iowa City, and she grew up there participating in various sports, though in high school she found exceptional success as a distance runner. She then competed on the track and cross-country teams at the University of Missouri for two years, where she earned a Bachelor of Journalism. After a lengthy break from endurance sports while she was based in Austin, Texas, working in the event management industry, she joined a triathlon group and the sport has been part of her life ever since. Since turning pro in 2014, she has posted 21 podium finishes that may actually have to be updated, I'm guessing, because she just recently finished fourth at the Boulder 70.3. After her 140.6 distance debut in late 2017, Leslie qualified for the 2018 Ironman World Championship in Hawaii. She returned to the Big Island in 2019 and was the fourth American finisher. She also works as a coach and through that endeavor is able to share with others her passion and the positive impact an active lifestyle has had in her life. But for today, she's joining me for a brief while to talk about all of that here on the Tridark Podcast. Thank you so much, Leslie, for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. Well, let's begin first, if you wouldn't mind, just telling me about your journey to triathlon. You you mentioned that you're coming from a running background and that you had that kind of long break from endurance sport. So how did you get into the multi-sport lifestyle and what made you make the decision to become a professional? So yeah, that's it's kind of a it was kind of not something that I thought about doing in my 20s or anything. I didn't have these big plans about being a professional triathlete. It honestly just just kind of one thing happened after another and I found myself there. Obviously, I made some very intentional decisions, but you know, it's not something that I had thought about for a long time or before I did triathlon. And like you mentioned, I did do competitive running in high school and then I ran Division one cross country and track in college, but really it, it, I only did it a couple of years. I was a dropout. I, I wasn't very into it. I got very burnt out. I had a few, a few good times. There were a couple of times in there where I got in pretty good shape, but it just at that young of an age, it really wasn't for me. So, so I, I, I ran through about half of college and then after that, I stayed active off and on, but nothing super consistent, nothing competitive. I mean, to be honest, I was just so, I was very burnt out from it. And I worked in event management in Austin, Texas, and I traveled a lot. And it was definitely not a lifestyle for endurance sports. So how I got into it 
really was I, I felt like I was just kind of missing being really consistently active in my life. I think I had had a long enough break from being consistently active and being serious about it. So I joined this triathlon club in Austin, Texas called T3. And I'm not even sure it might just be a swimming club now. But at that time, it was a triathlon club. And I was thinking, well, maybe I can spend a little more time doing this versus going to happy hour. (laughs) And I can be a little healthier and get back into being active. And really, because of my past with running, I didn't want to just run just because I was in my mind, I was over that. So to me, triathlon was kind of perfect because it gave you some good diversity in your training, doing swim, bike, run. They had some strength sessions. And so really that's how I got into it. And I just started enjoying it and enjoying being in endurance sports, but not just running. I, as much as I had a lot of swim lessons and was in water a lot growing up, I definitely didn't have a competitive swimming background. So that was a really fun challenge to learn how to swim correctly and to try to get faster doing lap swimming and doing group swims was a completely new thing for me. So yeah, that's pretty much how it started. And then as far as becoming a professional, I had a, a pretty, it pretty quickly, I could see improvements just because I was coming from being pretty out of shape and not having swam and biked a lot in my life. And I ended up getting my pro card pretty quickly because I don't know if you've heard of the Captex triathlon. It used to be, it might still be a pretty big triathlon where back in the day, if you were top three in the elite open category, you could get your pro card. And I believe I was second and I don't think the field was super competitive. So it's one of those things where I got my pro card, but I would not call myself a professional triathlete at that time. Not even close. I was still traveling for work a lot. I wasn't doing it seriously, but really that's when I would say just being more consistent and focused with it, that that's when that started. So you obviously coming from the running background, the run was something that was easy for you to get good at quickly. What about the bike? A bike is obviously the bike is the thing that people who don't have a biking background, just because they have an aerobic engine, they can learn how to bicycle. How much difficulty did it pose for you to get strong on the bike? I would say at first, again, coming from all relatively a very low level of biking and and not biking well at all, I saw some improvement. But I, I will say it definitely is something that I struggled with. And honestly, off and on do still struggle with. The run is still definitely my strength. And it seems that with running kind of, and this is exaggerating, but with, no matter what I do, it seems to be the strength and it seems sometimes like I've even had times where I haven't ran a lot or had like a sore ankle for a few weeks and not done much and then done a race and my times actually aren't that different. Whereas with cycling for me, I have to focus on being more consistent. I I just have to focus on it. I have to focus on having a few weeks where in a training block where the bike is a focus and it's just something that I can't be as casual with. And casual is a bad word because I'm not casual with running. I just think that for cycling, things just affect me more. If I miss cycling, it affects me more than if I miss running. And even a little more maybe than if I miss swimming, I would say. But that that's kind of hard to say. Yeah, we all have our sort of strength and something we could take a little more time off of. Uh, so I, I completely understand what you're saying. Now, now, you've made a lot of comments on your social media about your shall we say, struggles with swimming. <laughs> You've made light of your your swimming. Now, you're still a professional, so you're still swimming a heck of a lot faster than most of us, but relative, <laughs> obviously, to your competitors. So w- how long did it take for you to kind of get your swim to where it is now? And, and what do you do to try and get yourself that next level to try and get yourself up with the faster swimmers? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of times my attitude with swimming is I just need to swim good enough that it's not having a huge impact on my race. And like I said, it's really been, for lack of a better word, it's been a fun challenge for me. I would call myself an adult onset consistent competitive swimmer. It's not like I couldn't swim at all. But, you know, as far as having a correct technique, swimming consistently, going to group swims, I've really enjoyed the challenge. And I would say that 
For me, it seems to be kind of inconsistent in racing just because a lot of it has to do with the swim start and who's in the race. Are there swimmers around my kind of speed or are there just a couple super fast swimmers off the front and I end up by myself? So it, it's kind of anxiety provoking to me to kind of never know what I'm going to get when I go into races. Uh, I think that wetsuit and non-wetsuit affects things too. But pretty much for me, I just, and I do not do this consistently, but just normal weeks trying to get in 18 to 20K of swimming a week and trying to get in two very high quality swims a week and then some other easier or moderate swimming is just kind of my general goal and my general plan. And obviously that's thrown off by tapering, recovering, time off, everything like that. But I would say that's kind of my norm. I'm never going to be first out of the water, but I'm always going to try to keep getting better and get on the exactly perfect feet of someone who's just a little bit faster than me and can pull me to a better swim and just try to continue with some get out speed too. Cause like I said, the, the swim start can really set up the whole race for me and a lot of people. So, well, you're preaching to the choir here in terms of the adult onset swimmers. And we all struggle. I think so many in triathlon come to triathlon from a non-competitive swimming background. And it is the frustration for many of us. I think I learned the hard way that while you may not win the race on the swim, you can certainly lose the race on the swim. It's taken me a long time personally to get to the point where I'm now in the mix on the swim so that I can be competitive. What do you think made the biggest difference for you in terms of getting your swim to the level it's at now? Is it just swimming more? Is it doing something with your technique? What was it for you, do you think? And it may not just be one thing. I would say overall, definitely it has to do with swimming more and swimming consistently over time. That being said, I say this to athletes that I coach and it applies to me. If you can get some really good advice and just even modify one small thing with your technique, that can be, that's a great way to just jump up an improvement without months of swimming or having nothing to do with fitness, simply technique I think that that's the best thing that you can do. And for me, just along the way, I think I've, I, I've been thankful to have just along the way, people look at me and I think it's always good to get a fresh look. Like this year, I went to the Magnolia Masters Pro Triathlete Swim Camp in the Woodlands in Texas. It's with Tim Floyd. And he just, after all these years now that I've swam, getting a fresh look from him was very helpful. And I've noticed it in the pool. And I haven't raced a lot this year, but at my last race, I feel like I had a pretty strong swim. And I think it's just mentally stimulating and just simply makes you faster. If you can just get some trustworthy, good people to look at your stroke every once in a while, get a fresh look, and just really focus on trying to apply that advice. And I think also something you've said a couple of times now is the idea that it's a challenge that you embrace, because I know for many, including myself, I I came, I had to learn how to swim to do this. And for the longest time, I dreaded my swim workouts because I felt like I was putting in so much effort for so little benefit in terms of actual improvement that was observable in any meaningful way. But embracing it more as a challenge and and taking it on as something I'm going to put all this effort into because I I know it's going to require all this effort, but really looking at it as a challenge, I think coming into it with that kind of mindset also is so helpful. Totally. And I choose to do that because like I said, it's pointless for me to ever think, oh, I'm going to be this amazing swimmer and be like in the front pack or first out of the water with anyone any strong swimmer there at all. That's not going to happen. And I don't mean that from a negative way, but I can do a competition with myself and say, Hey, I've been swimming a while now, but I still have room for improvement and I can still get better with my technique and I can still get better with building swimming muscles and mobility. And, and again, I, I'm not going to say, Oh, every week I'm swimming 20 K no, but just really trying to stay consistent and look for ways to improve kind of keeps me engaged with it as opposed to pretty much having a competition with myself versus with other people, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. Yeah, that's great. And now you've been a professional now for nine years, I guess. This is your 10th season, I imagine. 
Yes, I believe so. That it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to say because I got my pro car. I, I moved to Boulder in 2014, and then that's when I quit traveling for work and I started taking triathlon seriously. I did have my pro card before that for maybe a year and a half and did racing and everything. But in my mind, I consider when I got very serious about it, probably when I moved to Boulder in 2014, because the life just kind of versus my decisions and how things worked out. It just, that's when I consider that I became a real pro uh, committed pro triathlete. All right. Well, let's say that nine years then. So and as you look back sitting here now, do you think back on any particular highlights? You've had a very storied career, lots of podium finishes. I've asked this question of several pros and often it's not the podium finishes that they really remember, but I'm curious what it is for you. That's that's really great. Oh man, there there's a lot. I would say that a highlight for me, even though the race didn't go great, was doing Kona just because it's such a such an iconic race. And honestly, I have not, relative to the number of 70.3s I've done, I have not done a lot of full Ironman races. I would like to do one this year, perhaps end of this year. But so so really the last time I did a full Ironman was 2019 Kona. And honestly, the race didn't go great. And there's still so many things I think I need to figure out for that distance in general, let alone those those specific conditions. But it really was a highlight just to be there. Because again, it's like the iconic race of triathlon or, or one of the main iconic races of triathlon. So that was very cool. And Oh man, I'm trying to think what what other kind of highlights. I think for me, a, a time period that really stands out for me is maybe around kind of twenty early 2017, because I think 2017 through 2019, I really kind of went a level up in the sport at the time. And that was just a really cool feeling to see just the hard work paying off and kind of, and again, like I said, I've always just taken it season by season and I never had this big plan to be a pro triathlete. And I still think I take it season by season and it's just been, a, it was then and still is a cool experience to just, to try to get better. And like many people, the, the 2020 year was a big, I lost a lot of trajectory. Some people trained a lot that year and got in really good shape. I, I was not one of those. I, I did by the end of the year. But I just kind of try to frame that as perhaps just a, a little break in the career. And with everything going on in the world, that's just how it happened and have just kind of tried to keep moving up since then. How did you come to join the Real Triathlon Squad? And what has that meant for you? So yeah, the Real Tri Squad, I, I was on that starting in early 2021. And pretty much just kind of out of the blue, Nick and Jackson reached out to me, Nick Chase and Jackson Laundry, who were kind of founders of the team. They reached out to me and said they were starting a team and they were looking for a few female pros. And honestly, at the time, I didn't think much of it because they didn't give me many details. And sometimes it's like, okay, well, we'll see kind of like, okay, well, we'll see what happens with this. But yeah, I'd be interested. Keep me posted. And and just kind of from there, they made it happen. And the team formed and then made it happen again in 2022. And now here we are over halfway through, well, about whatever, halfway through 2023, the team is still going strong. And that's just been something that I've been really thankful to be a part of because the sponsorship world can be really tough. And I think the team format, because I, I was on Maverick Multisport earlier in my career, that was kind of a team, that was the team format as well. And I just like that because it creates a bit of camaraderie in a very individual sport because you feel like you're kind of working towards things together. And when then you can do things, get content where you hang out at races and create friendships through it. And again, just some camaraderie in the sport. So that's super nice. And then just, like I said, the sponsorship area is not always the easiest thing to manage. So just kind of condensing some of the sponsorships, sharing them with other people, all kind of being in it together. It's just, it's been a really good experience. And do you guys like have, I don't know, 
group chats where you bounce ideas off each other for training or for race strategies? Because I've noticed that several times uh, a few of you are at the same race. And I, I wonder if that's on purpose or or how is the team dynamic working in that sense? And And when you're at the same race, are you working together as a team? So I would say that when we when there's a handful of us at the same race, it's always super nice because we'll share accommodation, share a car, we'll get some social media content, some YouTube content. And again, like I said, the camaraderie, just kind of knowing, even though it's, I know a lot of people in the sport, but it's just nice knowing that people on my same team are going to be there and we can go to the pro meeting together and again, share some race expenses and everything like that. So, and then what you said about kind of the group chats and bouncing things off of each other, even when we're not at races, we always have a WhatsApp chat going for just kind of random things as well as business things. And like you said, bouncing ideas off of each other. And then we also have a group Zoom call, not super often, but once every couple of months where we all get on and talk. It seems a little more in person than a WhatsApp chat, but we definitely do all stay in touch and work together on things and provide a lot of support for each other. So it's it's a very good environment to be a part of. And if you're all at the same race, is there any team dynamic or you're all independent at that point? So I would say if we're all at the same race, at the end of the day, it still is an individual sport. But I would say that if I'm with, let's say, with Lisa or Tamara or Nicole in the race and I see them doing well and or somehow some we're by each other on the bike or something like that, there's definitely an extra motivation to support each other in that environment, or it's a bit motivating almost when it, I think it's very motivating for all of us when multiple people from the team do well at a race. Uh, all right. I'm going to push you back a little bit here because I, the reason I'm asking about this is because we have not seen, except in Collins Cup isn't a great example because the Collins Cup is teams, but the teams are right. not working together. But triathlon does lend itself to a team approach. So for example, in the swim, I believe that you and Tamara swim pretty similarly. So if yes. you and Tamara, yeah. if you and Tamara were at the same race, you would benefit if you decided ahead of the game, hey, look, this is Tamara's day. I'm going to lead Tamara on the swim so that she can draft off of my feet and she's going to come out of the water a little fresher. That would be a team dynamic. Has that been discussed? I see what you're saying. No, honestly, that really hasn't been discussed. Why now, not? That it- makes total sense. You guys, um, I, I'm throwing this out there for you guys. I, I really yeah. think that's, that is something. If you guys are going to be a team, and I happen to think all of the pros on your team, I think are awesome. And I, I mean, why not? Why not help each other out? You're all, you're all accomplished pros. It's I'm, obviously you can't be drafting on the bike. So obviously there's none of that kind of stuff, but it seems to me that there's a, there's opportunity here. I, I'm suggesting you bring it up at your next Zoom. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying, I, I just think having nothing to do with our team specifically in non-draft, in, in long course, non-draft triathlon, that's just not something you hear about people doing just because it, I think People are hesitant, would be hesitant maybe to even say that and tell me what you think, because then it seems like, oh, are you going to just try to ride a little clothes on the bike or are, are you t- are you working together in an unfair way on the bike, which if you're keeping the drafting distance, you're not. But I think people just kind of try to steer away from that. And then I think another consideration is as much as when Tamara, I haven't swam with her for a while. She might be ahead of me now. I, I don't know, but her and I have swam together at a few races and Honestly, the swim start can be so chaotic that even when you start next to someone that you're like, I'm going to swim with this person, just with lack of visibility at all and everyone wearing a black wetsuit or swim skin and and cap and goggles, it's not very easy to guarantee, hey, I'm going to end up with this person or a little bit ahead of this person or right on their feet. It's and, And maybe that's an issue I have and I need to focus more or get better at that. But I have just found that it's kind of 
it's hard to control that dynamic. No, that makes no sense. question. No question. I, I listen, I remember the mass starts and I know how hard it was. And, and I can, now that it's, you guys are the only ones doing mass starts, but uh, even though you're a smaller group, it, it's very chaotic and, and watching yes. that is not something I miss very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of my least favorite parts in some races, some races it's better than others. Some races it feels like a flying V of people just going over me and pushing down on my shoulders and legs and hit, and and I don't think anyone's being malicious or anything. It's just it's the dynamic. And then sometimes, like at Boulder, you kind of bump a couple people at the beginning, and then all of a sudden I was by myself, and that wasn't ideal in certain ways, but it was very peaceful and enjoyable in a way. But you know, I just think that yeah, a lot of things happen in the swim start that, that there's no control over. Yeah, right. What happens in the swim start stays at the swim start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyways, team dynamics, something to think about for the future. I, I want to finish up just uh, talking a little bit about, well, first of all, actually, before we finish, I, I want to hear what you have planned for the rest of the season. You mentioned a possible Ironman. Is that like Florida? Is that something you're thinking about? So, yes, I, I will say I... My first race, sorry, my first race of the season was very rough at St. George. And I got some, just to kind of set up why I don't have a ton of plans right at the moment. My first race of the season was pretty tough and I got some blood work after and I had some iron numbers very low and hemoglobin wasn't great and and just some things that that weren't health-wise quite on point. And so I've been working on that. And it's really my responsibility as a professional to stay on top of that stuff. So it's something I should have checked in with a couple months earlier. But again, just working on that now while I can. And I did have a much better race at Boulder and I'm feeling better. So now the plan is to do Oregon 70.3 at the end of July. And I'm, you know, not 100% booked, but 99% sure I'm, I'm planning on that race. And then in a perfect world, I would get into the PTO US Open, perhaps with a roll down, like I got for the European Open that I didn't go to, but I did get a roll down or perhaps a wild card since I'm an American athlete. So that would be the ideal. And that's early August. But either way, then after that, I was thinking about perhaps Augusta 70.3. And then, yeah, as far as for an Ironman, I think an end of the year one would be ideal, perhaps Florida, but it, it it's kind of a, a play it by ear thing right now. And I think in very far in the future as a bucket list race, and when I say very far, I mean like next year, it would be cool to do Challenge Roth, but I would like to do a, a full Ironman before doing that. All right. Now I want to finish up by asking a little bit about your coaching. Tell me about how you got into that, what the status is of that right now. How many athletes, well, not how many athletes, but well, yeah, I guess how many, how many athletes, what kind of athletes are you carrying and what's your coaching philosophy with them? Yeah. So I've been coaching since I believe 20, ooh, 2015. I coach under the umbrella of peak athletic coaching because I, I, when I started, I knew the owner and I wanted to get into coaching, but I didn't want to start my own like full business. I wanted to focus more on the coaching part, not the, not the business side of things. And that's just kind of what I've always stuck with. So I've stayed under that umbrella. And I think the most athletes I've ever had at once is around eight or nine, because I really try to keep it so that it's, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be a pro triathlete, I need to put as much into that as I can. But I, but I one enjoy coaching and sharing my knowledge with other people and helping them fit triathlon into their life. And then of course it is some consistent income and a very inconsistent with the other, with the sport part of my life being pretty inconsistent. It's nice to have that consistent income. So that's kind of always been my thought with that. And right now I'm only coaching four people. I would be open to taking on one to two more, but at this point, I think it would, it, it, it's someone who a lot of people I have now, the people that I have now are people I've like someone I've coached in the past or someone that a friend or athlete referred me to. It's kind of nice to have a connection from the beginning, but that being said, I'd be open to taking on one or two more people. And my base philosophy is that my job is to help someone get as fit as possible while enjoying the sport as much as possible while fitting it into their life, kids, work, 
just life stress. I'm there to help fit triathlon into their life the best way I can and help them have the best experience they can in the sport. And that is my goal. And obviously, then it gets more granular than that as far as and looking at power numbers and heart rate and training bills and it builds and all those specific things that I have learned from over the years from coaching people and my own experience and from reading, et cetera. And we get down to all of that. But I would say, again, the base philosophy is how can I help you fit triathlon into your life in the least stressful, most enjoyable, highest fitness way possible. So that that's if kind of in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I appreciate that. Well, Leslie Smith, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Leslie is a professional in the sport of triathlon. She's done exceedingly well. She's part of the RTS Real Tri Squad, along with Jackson Laundry, Tamara Jewett, and many others. Leslie, thank you again for joining me today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you, Jeff. You too. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash try.podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.